0: This is the weekend that we remember those who've gone before us and have given up their lives and limbs and everything for our blessing being able to be a free country. And so, if you see a veteran, even though this is the time we remember the dead, thank them for their service to our country. You can turn over in your Bibles to Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to continue in our study this morning of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been studying this text for the last several weeks, and hopefully it's been fascinating and challenging as well. And Paul here is speaking about this coming one known as the Antichrist, who's basically the the culmination of the most wickedest people who ever walked the face of the earth. And uh, he mentions him, um, not by name, he doesn't use the word Antichrist, but he mentions him by description, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to try to work our way down through verse 12. And some interesting material to share with you this morning. And so I would ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. And I just want to remind us what's in our text. We haven't read it in a couple of weeks. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Paul writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And, when, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs, and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and to be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Father, we ask you to bless these words to our hearts and minds this morning as we work through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, this is both a daunting and an exciting task to take you through these scriptures, because every week I'm learning new things. Uh. But be reminded as believers we are to anticipate the coming of Christ are we not 2 Timothy 4:8 Paul told his disciple Timothy he said henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me Paul says but also to all who have loved his appearing That's an important verse we should long for, we should so greatly look forward to and anticipate the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, that we should love his appearing. This should be our greatest hope as believers, our most joyous anticipation. We're to live in hope, not fear, beloved. We are to long for the return of Christ. We're to say, along with the Apostle John, John, even so, come Lord Jesus, right? And yet there are some people in the church today who claim to be Christians who are, for one reason or another, afraid of, fearful of, you could say, the return of Christ. Well, apparently, the Thessalonians, here in our text, had such a fear. They had a fear that somehow... They were left out. Uh, We saw that in the first two verses of our text. He says in verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Someone who had apparently written a letter, a false letter, and signed Paul's name to it and sent it to this young, new-believing church who was undergoing severe persecution. You know, that happens sometimes as believers, does it not? You come to Christ, and you think, oh, everything's going to be a bed of roses, and it's just the opposite, right? It's like God just cranks the heat up, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, God. But that's what we're called to. Don't believe the false gospel out there that says, oh, no, you're called to wealth, and you're called to prosperity, and you're called to health. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Now, God may grant you those things. That's wonderful. But then again, he also may take you down a road that's not so appealing, for his own purpose and his plan to to form and to mold you into the image of his son. That's his goal. And so sometimes that involves good things, sometimes that involves suffering. Well, they were undergoing severe suffering, and they got this letter Paul had just finished in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, telling them about this coming day and everything. And then he said, don't worry about it. You're going to be out of here. The rapture is going to come. God's going to come back through Christ in the clouds, and he's going to gather you to himself. And so you're not going to have to worry about this severe wrath of God that's going to fall on the face of the earth. And we call that time period the day of the Lord. It's not just one day, it's a period. And many facets make up this day of the Lord, the end times, you could say. Uh, it's, It's a technical term for the final judgment of God on the ungodly, on those who are not believing. And within that, you have a various number of events. Let me just remind you, you have the rapture of the church when Christ comes back in the clouds, it says, and he calls us to be with him. And instantly, whether we're alive As a believer or whether we're dead, it says the dead in Christ will rise first. They will literally, their body will be risen out of the grave in a glorified fashion and reunited with their soul in the air. And then those who are still alive will be gathered up together. Our bodies will be instantaneously transformed into a glorified state and we will be with the Lord and we'll be with the Lord forevermore. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. That's the rapture of the church, and we've gone through all that. Then you have this period of time where you have the rise of the Antichrist on earth. Seven years. It's the the last year of Daniel's 70th, 70th week. And so it's, it's, it's very important that we understand that this Antichrist will come out of Pretty much nowhere. It says he's a little horn, and he rises up among the other horns, the other nations. And I'm going to be sharing a little bit about that. But then you have the salvation of the nation of Israel, and you have a series of judgments that come through natural means, really, on the, the first part of the tribulation. Think about it. When that rapture happens, what's going to happen? There's going to be a lot of tragedies that happen. And then you have a series of government Uh, judgments that happen through supernatural means during that second half period, the second three and a half years. Then you have at the end of seven years, you have the return of Christ. You have the battle of Armageddon, the destruction of the world's nations. You have the judgment of the sheep and the goats. You have the establishment of the millennial kingdom, a thousand years here on this earth where God through Christ will reign with an iron fist and we will be here with him reigning. You have the binding of Satan during that time. And then he's loosed for a little while at the end of that period of time for a worldwide rebellion. Then basically you have the destruction of everything we know. The Bible says that the earth and the heavens will be destroyed. God will destroy them. And he will create a new heaven and a new earth. And that's where we will dwell as believers with our God forevermore. So there's a lot of times, there's a lot of details. There's a lot of epics that make this up. And you know what? What people want to know, the question people are asking is, well, when is this going to happen? That's nothing new. They were asking the same thing. The Thessalonians were asking that question. Can you tell us about it? That's the level of their curiosity. And um, maybe they, they feared they weren't ready for the Lord to come back. Maybe they feared, as the case of Thessalonians, they actually missed it somehow because they got this false letter saying, oh no, the Apostle Paul says now we're in the day of the Lord and we missed the rapture. Um, Maybe they thought they needed to do something in anticipation of this day coming so they didn't miss the rapture and end up in the day of the Lord. And for whatever reason, they didn't want to be caught off guard, you could say. And Paul says to them. However, back in in uh, uh, verse uh, four of of the previous verses, he tells us that you are not in um, you are not in darkness; that that day should overtake you like a thief. And what he we went through all that, and and basically he says, you know what? As believers, as Christians, you do not belong to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. That's not for you, as Christians. You're not in darkness. You're children of the light. He he went through this whole this whole uh, explanation. You don't belong in the day of the Lord. Where do you belong? You belong in the rapture, not the day of the Lord. The Lord is going to take you out of here before the day of the Lord and all the wrath of God falls upon this earth. And so our spiritual, you could say, preparedness or readiness for the coming of Christ is not related to setting a date or watching a clock or looking for signs I mean, Lord knows, just look around. We're a lot closer to the day of the Lord than we have been, right? <clears throat> it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. And I'm going to be sharing a little bit about this. But on the issues, they needed knowledge. Paul said, I'm going to give you the knowledge that you need, but I'm not going to tell you what day it's coming. And so he discusses in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, their need about this new revelation that God gave him about the rapture. And uh, that's the first time it's really mentioned in the Scriptures because it is a new revelation. And the character and the nature of the the rapture, and he explains that whole thing. We've been through that. But nowhere in the Bible does it tell us when this day will happen. You can't fixate a time and date on it. Uh, We refer to the rapture theologically as being... The imminent return of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Absolutely nothing has to happen before he comes back for the, his church. Nothing. It could take place at any time. And the key is to be ready. Jesus Christ wants us to be ready for his return, for his church And when it comes to the day of the Lord and all the events surrounding that and all the the things that are in the end times, the times and the epics, he says, you know what, you don't need to know about that. Don't worry about the particulars. As a matter of fact, even in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself makes an astounding statement to his followers. He says in verse 36, they're asking him, well, when's this going to happen? Verse 36, he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Wow, no one knows? Well, he must know. Not even the angels of heaven know. Nor the Son. But the Father only. Jesus somehow in his incarnate state with his self-limitations did not know at that time his return. You say, well, how can God not know anything? I don't know. <laughs> I'm just reading you what the Bible says. That's We can ask God when we get to heaven, maybe he'll tell us, maybe he won't. You know, But nobody knows. Not men, not angels, not even the incarnate Son of God when he was on earth knew. He doesn't even know. It says in Mark chapter 13, listen to this, verse 32, but concerning That day or that hour, no one knows, Mark says. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And then he includes this warning. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time, what, will come. We don't know when Jesus will return. That's why it's so important, and the Bible tells us this, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to turn your heart over to Christ. Because Christ could come back at any moment. He could come back right now. (laughs) We don't know when. And even at his ascension, when when Christ was ascending, he was being asked about the restoration of his kingdom. When's this going to happen? I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, we do that in our everyday lives. I know we're, we're traveling up to, to Boise next Sunday after church and, and going up there. And my daughter's sending me texts. Well, when is your flight arriving? She wants to know. Right? She wants to know. Well, they wanted to know about this restoration of the kingdom. And listen to what the Lord said to them in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, they asked the Lord, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? When's this going to happen? And listen to what his answer was. It's very telling. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What is Jesus saying there? Basically, he said, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't worry about it. That's not something you should be fixated on. That's not something that concerns you. That's something that concerns only the Father. Because only the Father has that kind of authority. We don't need to know all the particulars. As a matter of fact, you could honestly say, if we did know the time and date of Christ's return, it could even prove to be counterproductive in our spiritual lives, would it not? If we knew when Jesus was going to come and rapture his church... And when he was going to come in the day of judgment, if we knew the precise moment that all that would take place, I don't know about you, but I, I might tend to be a little spiritually indifferent in the meantime. <laughs> you know, he's not coming for two weeks. You know, I can kind of mess around over here, do this, do that. He's not coming. I don't need to watch and wait. I got it on the calendar. I got it set on my iPhone. I got it on my iWatch. I, the alarms will go off. But see, he says, no, I'm not going to share that information with you because it would be counterproductive. Or it could be really a sense of, it could honestly set fear and panic in our hearts, even as believers. When you think about your loved ones who haven't come to Christ yet, and you know that next Wednesday the Lord's coming, man, you need to repent. Right? You could, you could go into a, a quick panic attack. God has chosen not to reveal the time of the final series of epics so that all believers live, what? In anticipation of it. He wants us to wait for it with anticipation. It's kind of like the, I think it was the what was it, ketchup commercial. Remember that? I mean, pouring it out of the bottle, you had to wait, wait. That's well, worth it. This is going to be worth it. And he says, you know what? You just have to be willing to anticipate this wonderful day. Now, we've been looking at several facts concerning this. There's nine in all. We'll get through the rest of them today, hopefully. But the first one we looked at a couple weeks ago concerning this coming world deceiver. And we're just going to highlight these, and then we'll go into the the last ones. The first one was the day of the Lord is the time of his revelation. Remember, we're talking about the revelation of the Antichrist. He already covered the coming of the Lord in chapter 1. Now he gets to the Antichrist this great day of Holocaust, this day of terror and judgment and vengeance from the Lord God Almighty upon this planet, when his wrath is unleashed, we often speak of it as the the tribulation period, the last three being even the great day of the Lord. But it's this time of revelation of the Antichrist. This is when he will be revealed, not before. And so a lot of people try to write books and articles and speak on this, and they say, oh, I think this is the antichrist." You don't know, because God didn't reveal it yet, so just stop playing all those games. Secondly, we said the departure of the church-age believers will come first, and we saw that in verse 3 last week. We said, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now remember, somebody wrote them a letter saying, hey, it already happened and you missed it. So they were kind of freaking out. So Paul had to write them and say, listen, don't you remember what I taught you? I taught you all this. We don't know what all he taught them, but he he must have taught them thoroughly. Because he doesn't really go into a lot of detail here. He probably taught them more than what's even available for us here in 2 Thessalonians and 1 Thessalonians. Now, I want to say that you know from the very onset, because I had several questions last week, There's a lot of good men, good theologians that hold different views on this passage of Scripture. Okay? Um, I'm trying to give you something additional to think of as we look at this. And as I read through this and read through this, I just, I was really struggling with this word rebellion. And as you do the study, you understand that, wow, this. When this says, unless the rebellion comes first, immediately we think of a, at least I thought of, a religious rebellion, the rebelling against God. And we talked about last week how, and it it is used that uh, way sometimes, but it's only used two times in the noun form, once here and once in Acts 21, uh, 21, where he's talking about them forsaking Moses and the law of Moses. But it's used, there's a verb form of this same word, episteme, and it's used 15 times in the verb form. And 11 of those 15 times in the New Testament, it's used in our English translations as the word depart or went away. Um, The angels came and they ministered to someone, they ministered to Christ, and then they departed. They, episteme, they, they went away. Uh, And then we looked, we said, well, there's some trouble here if you take it as being a religious apostasy, a religious rebellion, and good men hold to that view, and I held to that view, and still kind of favor it in some form. But I think this other view is rather interesting because in first Timothy chapter four verse one, when Paul wrote the Spirit expressly says, In the latter time some will depart, that's that word episteme, that that verb form that's used fifteen times. But he qualifies it, remember? He says, Depart from what? From the faith. He qualifies it as a religious rebellion or falling away. And it's the same person who wrote 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul. So it's not like you're dealing with a different author. So I kind of want to say that if he meant a religious departure here, if he meant a religious falling away, an apostasy in a religious sense, he would have said a falling away from the faith. He would have qualified it like he did here. But he doesn't put that in 2 Thessalonians. That's not there. And so there's also... The idea that there's this definite article used with the word which Im- implies a specific departure. It's the falling away, the departure, you could say. And you say, well, what departure is he talking about if you want to use the word departure? Well, what departure has he been talking about for the last book and a half? About the departure of the church from the face of the earth. So it could very well mean that. It implies a specific departure which was just mentioned in our text. And uh, I had a brother write me this past week and shared some different views on this and and it it proved to be very insightful. Um, One thing he said was there's a belief that this revelation of who the Antichrist is would be shown to believers who became such after the rapture. Remember, The rapture happens, the church is gone. Tribulation begins, but what happens? People are still coming to Christ. You're still going to have people who come to Christ. And we're going to be talking about that today. And so these are believers who came to Christ after the rapture, after the church is gone. And this revelation it could be twofold. It could be made to th- known to them at the same time the tribulation would begin. Because if you're a believer and you understand anything about Scripture and someone is being raised up in the world order and the world is in chaos and all of a sudden you see this individual rise up and embrace Israel and say, here, sign on the dotted line, I'm going to have a covenant with you. As a believer, I believe God would give you the wisdom to say, that's the Antichrist. That's the person that this is talking about. So it could be that first three of chapter two of Second Thessalonians could be the first revelation of the man of sin or the Antichrist to this post-rapture pre-tribulation believers. There's, you know, right when the rapture happens, we don't know when the tribulation begins after the rapture. It could be immediately. It could be weeks. It could, we don't know. Doesn't tell us. So there could be a time frame there where people come to Christ think about it and somehow maybe they didn't hear the gospel before and they realize wow this church is gone now maybe I need to look at God's word and maybe God would use that to bring them to faith. And we're going to be talking about the people who refuse Christ now and their state in a few moments. But then He made the point, maybe verses 7 and 8 could be a second revelation of this Antichrist, this lawless one, not to believers, but to Israel. Um, When he breaks his covenant, see, he signs the covenant originally, and for a believer, you would say, oh, that's the Antichrist. Look at everybody's following him. He's being raised up out of these League of Nations, And it's very interesting to me that the idea that maybe that could be a second revelation of just specifically to Israel. Because Israel is going to understand when he breaks that covenant and he begins to turn on Israel, they're going to realize, uh-oh, what do we do? Right? And that's when God is going to use that time and tribulation to draw even Israel to Christ. And so we saw that all last week. And then we looked at, thirdly, the description of the Antichrist that reveals his real identity. And we looked at four things here, and I'm not going to go through all these, but we just mentioned them. We looked at his depravity will go unchecked. He's called a man of sin. ESV says man of lawlessness there in verse 3, but it should be man of sin. Um, Secondly, we said his destiny is already settled. He's referred to as the son of perdition. The only other person referred to that is Judas. And we talked about that, how God, this is God carrying out his purpose and his plan. Even though this is a terrifying time, as believers, we need to understand that his destiny is settled. Uh, Revelation 1920 tells us he will be thrown into hell. He will lose, even though he is self-deceived. Thirdly, we talked about his determination to be honored above everyone in everything. He says there in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. This, whoever this individual will be, will have an incredible, off-the-chart ego that thinks he deserves worship, even more than God. And this is Satan incarnate, you could say. And you know, if you know anything about your Bible, uh, that Satan loves to be honored. <laughs> Satan loves to be worshipped. That's how this whole mess got started, right? All the way back when he was a good angel and he wanted to exalt himself <laughs> above God and he'd be tossed out of heaven. His pride, his arrogance. Well, he looks at this and says, "Hey, this is it. So he wants to be honored above everyone and Everything. And so it starts off kind of with this Antichrist at the beginning of the tribulation. Oh, he looks like he's going to resolve all these world problems. Israel gets on board with, board with him, and he says, hey, yeah, sure, you know, um, I'll, I'll give you a peace treaty. And a lot of people believe that this Antichrist will even allow them to build a temple. Somehow, some way, all this will happen. And Israel's already preparing for that. But he wants to be honored above everyone and everything. He doesn't want anyone to worship anything other than himself. And then the fourth thing we said, his decision to sit in the temple of God, a fatal decision, will be the final evidence of his real identity. And so... We saw those first three things. That brings us to our text for today. Look at verses 5 to 8. And this covers the day of his revelation. is impossible, the Bible says, until the restraint is removed. Look at what it says in verse 5. He says there in verse 5, hey, you should kind of already understand this stuff. I explained it to you already, did I not? Um, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Why are you falling for this false letter? And then he says this in verse 6, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. The day of his revelation, the Antichrist revelation, is impossible until the restrainer, the restraint, is removed. Um, If you read through this passage, it really does make sense. There's a pattern here dealing with the rapture in verse 6. It shows, and then it says, so that he may be revealed. So obviously he's not going to be revealed until the restraint is removed. In verse 7 and 8, he restrains it. Will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. That's where, in the Greek manuscripts... Lawless one is the correct translation there. In verse 3, you should write in there man of sin instead of lawless one, but man of sin is a better translation for verse 3. But here in verse 8, it is lawless one. See, it's very clear that there's a restraint, whatever this is, has to be removed for this antichrist to be revealed. Now, you can do your work on this if you want. But you will find a million different <laughs> versions of what people think this is. Who is the restrainer? What is the restrainer? Um, some people... You know, it's interesting when you read through these, these verses that when he says, uh, so that he may be revealed, okay, in verse, verse 6 there. And then it says in verse 7... Uh, he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Uh, in one of those versions, the, the, first, the first verse is used, it's kind of a neuter. It's, it's, res- it's referring more to a force. And then secondly, it's, it's referring to an individual. Um, but I think the best, <laughs> my conclusion, rather than go through all this other stuff, the best translation, the best understanding of this restrainer and who it is, I think the best one is that it is the Holy Spirit, listen, in the church. The Holy Spirit in the church. And that's why in this context the rapture is an issue, right? Because when will the church be gone? At the rapture. Uh, So, you're certainly not going to remove the Holy Spirit from the face of the earth. That would be impossible. He's omnipresent. You can't take the Holy Spirit completely out of the world. Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, what? You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there... The word of God says your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Now remember there's going to be people who are born again even maybe a little time before the tribulation and during the tribulation. You can't be born again without the Holy Spirit. So you can't say well the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. No, I think it's the Holy Spirit in the church. In the church. Now once again, good men disagree on this. You don't have to take my word for it. It's Fine, but I'm just saying that's what makes more sense in the context. And he does say, he after that which restrains. In other words, the Holy Spirit in the church, when the church is raptured, there's a restraining influence that's what? That's gone. Think about it. You think about this this world, and you think about the lack of the presence of Christ's Church. What's going to happen? It just boggles your mind. Um, you know, there's a there's a think tank, a group of individuals. It's called the Club of Rome, and you can do <coughs> research on this. <coughs> it's basically a sophisticated group of academic, political people who basically have this think tank, and they talk about world affairs. And the number one problem in achieving the goals, they say, of the new world order, which they're trying to put into place, the number one problem, guess what? Are Bible-believing Christians. This is the one thing that's standing in their way. This is the problem. Um... And they even say, these people have to be dealt with. We can't allow this to continue. And you understand what the restraint upon the world is. Who is, basically the the soul of the earth is is believers, the people that are here. Who's the light of the world, the salt of the, the world? Jesus said, let your light shine so shine before men that they may see your good works. Well, imagine one day when all the believers are pulled out. What's going to happen? Uh, I mean, it's bad enough now here with us here. I mean, it's, it's, you talk about hell on earth, it's going to be horrible. And this man of sin who is really dedicated, this Antichrist who is dedicated to depravity, to idolatry, he's just going to have a field day with people. Because these are going to be mostly unbelievers that he's dealing with. And anyone who does come to Christ during this time, and there will be a multitude who will come to Christ during the tribulation, they're going to be executed for their faith. Not a pretty picture. And God is even going to have to supernaturally protect a group of Jews who will be a believing remnant who will go around sharing the gospel of Christ. They will have to be protected supernaturally. It's going to be a terrible time on earth. You do not want to be here for this time. So the day of his revelation is simply impossible until this restraint, which I believe the Holy Spirit in the church, is removed. That's what's holding back this whole thing. Now when you look around and you understand the complacency and the indifference and... Just the, the lack of commitment of God's people in the church today. I think that we're not ready. We need to be ready for this day. I mean, in our minds, we're thinking, well, if the economy turns around and we can still go to the mall and, and get our milkshakes and our hamburgers, everything's great. No. No, no this ship's going down. Okay? And, and you want to be on the right side. You want to be on the, the side of Christ. May God help us if that doesn't resonate in your hearts. You know, I mentioned this Club of Rome, and I, I just want to read a little bit from an article that I get. I, it's an old article, but it kind of describes what this group of people is all about. It's basically a group of Anglo American financiers and industrialists who started this. It's called the, the Club of Rome, and they're from 10 different countries. That sounds familiar. They met in April of 1968 at Rockefeller's private estate in Italy. Uh, It was at the request of this Italian industrialist. He had close ties to Fiat and the uh, Olivetti Corporation. It says that he claimed to have solutions for world peace and prosperity, which could be accomplished through world government. The Club of Rome was established with a membership of 75 prominent scientists, industrialists, and economists from 25 countries and became one of the most important foreign policy arms of the roundtable group. Many of the Club of Rome executives were drawn from NATO, and they have been able to formulate a lot of what NATO claims are its policies. Uh, The first Club of Rome... Conference in the United States was held in 1969 where the American branch was organized as the American Association of the Club of Rome. And it basically, like I said, it, it, it functions as a research institute, um, economic, political problems, social problems. But this is what was interesting. They claimed this. There is no other viable alternative to the future survival of civilization than a new global community under a common leadership. On September 17, 1973, they released a report called the Regionalized and Adaptive Model of the Global World System. Now, this is old information but we're not hearing this. I didn't know this before I read this. Which revealed the the club's goal of dividing the world into ten political economic regions called kingdoms. Which would unite the entire world under a single form of government. This is back in 1973, beloved. These regions are North America, Europe, Japan, South Africa, Australia, Asia, South America, North Africa, uh, Middle East, Central Africa, India, in Indochina and China. They didn't use the term kingdom because they thought that would be too problematic. Uh, Listen to this. Howard Odom, a marine biologist at the University of Florida, who's a member of the Club of Rome, by the way, was quoted in August 1980 in the edition of Fusion Magazine. He said this. It is necessary, listen to this, that the United States cut its population by two-thirds within the next 50 years. He didn't say how this would be accomplished. However, one of the reports, Limits to Growth in 1973, dealt with the problem of overpopulation. During the Carter administration, a task force was appointed to expand upon this report. And On on July 24, 1980, a two-volume document called The Global 2000 Report, which had been written by former Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, was, report, was represented to President Carter and then uh, Secretary of State Muskie. It attempted to project global economic trends for the next 20 years and indicated that the resources of the planet, listen, were not sufficient enough to support the expected dramatic increase in world population. The report called the Population of the United States, this is just alarming to me, to be reduced by 100 million people by the year 2050. About six months later, the Council of Environmental Quality made recommendations based on this report called the Global Future, a time to act. They suggested an aggressive program of population control which included sterilization, contraception, and abortion. In 1982 of August, an executive intelligence review published a report called Global 2000, Blueprint for Genocide, which said that the two aforementioned presidential reports are correctly understood as political statements of intent, the intent on, on the part of such policy centers as the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission, and the International Monetary Fund to pursue policies that will result not only in the death of the 120 million cited in the reports, but in the death of upwards of 2 billion people by the year 2000. Throughout the world, the Club of Rome has indicated that genocide should be used <clears throat> to eliminate people who they refer to as useless eaters. This would be accomplished by using limited wars in advanced countries and even a limited nuclear strike as a strategic, at a strategic location. Starvation through created famines and diseases in third world countries. Um, this echoed their earlier plan. Um, they came up with this secret report that wasn't released until September 1966, um, known as the Report from Iron Mountain on the possibility and desirability of peace. It appeared to be a blueprint for the future of this country and contained recommendations that included plans for government control and manipulation, depopulation, gun control, disarmament. This is back in 19, well prior to 1966, an international police force and concentration camps. The report stated some of the invisible functions of war. <laughs> so they're looking at war as a positive thing. It's kind of interesting. It provides antisocial elements with an acceptable role in the social stru- stru- structure. The younger and more dangerous of these hostile social groupings have been kept under control by the selective service system. Man destroys surplus members of his own species by organized welfare. Enables the physically deteriorating older generation to maintain control of the younger and maintain maintain control of the younger, destroying it if necessary. Um, The report made this observation. War has provided both ancient and modern society with a debatable system for stabilizing and controlling national economies. No alternative method of control has yet been tested in a complex modern economy that has shown it to be remotely comparable in the scope of effectiveness War fills certain functions essential to the stability of our society. Until other ways of filling them are developed, the war system must be maintained and improved in effectiveness. Uh, In a novel called The Ceremony of the Innocent in 1976, the author Taylor Caldwell said this, she said this, There will be no peace in the tormented world, only a programmed and systematic series of wars and calamities until the plotters have gained their objective. What it is, here's what she says, an exhausted world willing to submit to a planned Marxist economy and total and meek enslavement in the name of peace. And then it goes on and it, it, it introduces the AIDS virus. And it talks scientifically about where that came from, which is just freaky. And it doesn't even, this was written way before COVID. But listen, folks, something's going on in the world. And we'd mentioned it before. The spirit of Antichrist is active now. Even though we may not know who this individual is, it's definitely been active for years and years and years. From the very beginning. And he will not rest until he believes he achieves his goal. Well, fifthly, here's the fifth thing. His destruction will come when our Lord returns in all his glory. Amen? Amen. We don't, you know, I read all that just to put some things in context. I mean, you read about what these governments have done in the past, and then you put that in light of COVID. And Fauci and all the stuff that's going It's crazy. I mean, these people are, are definitely trying to manipulate things to turn our world into a one-world government. And you can do all the research on your own, on, on, your own on, on the web and find these facts to be true. But his destruction is coming. It's said there in verse 8, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring nothing bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Notice here, he doesn't use the words in the original language for annihilation. He says no, because he won't be annihilated. He used words that describe those who are in hell forever. See, a lot of people, even Christians I've had conversations with, have a problem with hell. I don't really believe in hell. I can't believe in hell. Well, you better believe in it because the bible declares it to be true. You know, they want to believe, well, I think when we die we're annihilated and there's nothing past that. Well, go ahead and believe that if you want, but that's not the truth. That's not what the word of god says. He uses words to describe those who are in hell forever. Who had tormented, who will be tormented day and night. There is such a place. Revelation uh, which we, we went through last week, but Revelation 19, verses 19 and 20, This let me read it for you. It tells us here, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. He's not successful. And with it, the false prophet, and these are all personages of Satan himself, who is in the present Who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two, it says, were thrown alive into the lake of fire, that's hell, that burns with sulfur forever, for all eternity. They will be defeated. His destruction will come when our Lord returns in all his glory. He and all his armies coming against Israel. at at Armageddon. And it's it's interesting. Imagine this. The Antichrist with all his armies, they're they're coming against Israel. It looks like Israel's just going to be snuffed out. And what happens? The Bible says that they actually turn away from Israel because the Son of Man comes, the Lamb of God. And when they see him come, they turn their attention to him. I mean, can you imagine thinking that you can take on God? That is how deceived and warped and wicked this Antichrist is, and all those who are following him at the time. And they turn their attention away from Israel, which spares them, but they come against the very Lamb of God. All these armies coming against Jerusalem, against Israel, and they almost have Israel gone. They want to get rid of the Jewish problem that's plagued the world. That's their mindset. And at that moment, when the Messiah returns and starts to clean up at Armageddon, they actually turn away from Israel and Jerusalem and away from the Jew, Jews and try to make war with the Lamb of God himself. That doesn't end well for them, by the way. You know, if you're here today and you have issues with God, you better get them resolved. You don't want to be angry at God. You, you do not want to have a war with God. You will not win that war. Because he's going to trample out, the Bible says, the wine press of God's wrath till the blood flows up to the horse's bridle. Notice it says horse is not a pony. That's a lot of blood, beloved. This whole land is going to be literally a bloodbath. And the king of kings and lord of lords will clean house. Well, sixthly, the sixth thing here, is that his deeds will be inspired by Satan himself. Look at what it says in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is what? What's it say? By the activity of who? Of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders. This is interesting to me. Um, Can you imagine what would happen if Satan really gave up all of his unbelievable power? And Satan is a very powerful individual. But if he gave all that power, if he gave it up, if he was somehow able to, to channel that through one person, that's the Antichrist. That's exactly who the Antichrist will be. He's going to do that in the life of both the Antichrist, the false prophet. We read those who are coming. Is, 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 it's after the work of Satan, Satan incarnate, you could say. And Satan is, is causing this with his power, certain signs and wonders I mean these are the same words that describe what Jesus did with his apostles he performed signs and wonders and miracles but the satan does it with an element of deceit so the antichrist and the false prophet will perform signs he they will be able to perform wonders and miracles even and the Bible says that false prophets will arise, Jesus said, who will perform signs and wonders. If it was possible, even to, uh, even to deceive the elect, if it's possible, it's not possible. But if it was, well, that would be the way to do it. I know a lot of people in the church today, beloved, that's what they're after. They're after signs and wonders, and miracles. That's all they're searching. And when you explain to them, look, this is, this is a dead-end street here. You're barking up the wrong tree. They don't want to hear it because they really believe that, you know, up at Bethel Church in Reading, when the gold flakes come out of the sky that literally God is raining down flakes of gold upon their church. They don't tell you there's a guy up there with a bag of, you know, little gold flakes that aren't worth a hill of beans putting them in the air conditioner duct. And our people are so stupid today to believe this stuff. Or you have these miracle-working healers, you know. They'll sit somebody down and they'll say, oh, look, your legs are are crooked, you know. Let me, oh, God's growing the other one. It's all manipulation. But these false Christs, this Antichrist, will literally be able to perform signs and wonders. The NIV, which I usually don't refer to, but the NIV here translates it this way. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. And listen to this. I love this translation. He will use all sorts of displays of power with signs signs, and wonders that serve the lie. Serve the lie. See, that's the whole point. Uh, turn over to Revelation chapter 13 quickly. I just want to read this text for you. Revelation chapter 13. Let me show you how Satan is behind all this and how there will be miraculous things happening by his hand. In Revelation 13, verse 4, it says, And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. These are all elements of Satan. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? In other words, wow, this is just too much power for us. We don't know what to do. Look down at verse 12. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So he was mortally wounded and supernaturally, not by God, healed. Verse 13 says, It it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. These are all the signs that this individual is able to, and Satan is able to perform. Verse 14, and by the signs that it is allowed to work, notice he's allowed to do it under the hand of authority of God, in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. This is unbelievable. His deeds... His deeds of the false prophet, all these, they urge all the religions of the world to support this one individual, the Antichrist, and his global agenda. His deeds will be inspired by the devil himself. Well, look at verse 10, because we see our seventh thing here out of nine. His deception will affect those that perish. And this is important. This is very important. You listen And I say, praise God to that. Look at what it says. And and with all wickedness, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And you say, well, why would you praise God for that? Uh, By that I mean that his deception will not affect those who believe. It will not affect those who believe. This is an incredible passage And it really speaks to the idea of whether or not people have a second chance after the rapture in the tribulation. Some people believe that after the rapture, if you've heard the gospel and you haven't come to Christ and all of a sudden the church is gone, guess what? There's no hope for you. There's no hope for your salvation because you already willfully rejected the message of the gospel. That may be true. We don't know. But there's another side to this as well. It's very comforting, it should be, for believers. Because it says, And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. In other words, it's only unbelievers, only unbelievers, listen to me, who will be affected by this deception. Well, what's the deception? What's the big lie here? Look at Revelation 13.8. Jump back there real quick. This is interesting. Verse 8 says, Revelation 13.8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Listen, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Who worships the Antichrist? All those who are not saved, those who are not believers. In in Revelation 17, chapter 17, verse 8, we read about this Babylon the Great, this harlot woman who's riding on the beast. And it says in verse 8 of Revelation 17, the beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and, and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, listen, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. I mean, this is incredible. Those who take the mark of the beast, beloved, will only be unbelievers. Those who don't take the mark of the beast are clearly identified as believers. See, that's the comforting part. I know a lot of Christians who are worried, you know. You hear them sometimes. And uh, I remember back when we were, um, we'd go to Knott's Berry Farm and go to different amusement parks and take the kids there. And I remember the kids thinking, wow, they wanted to stamp my right hand, but I didn't let them, you know. It's like... (laughs) Okay, that's not the mark of the beast. I mean, it's a lot more than that. You know, it's going to be a lot more than that. Um, the Bible is very clear about that. Um, but no believer will be taking the mark of the beast. And the reason I point this out is this is apparently the key that causes people to worship this person instead of God. Somehow, that, that triggers their their... their Worship of this Antichrist. Um, Believers are going to know it. They're going to say, well, I'm not going to take that mark. Now, will they suffer as a result? Definitely. The Bible says if you don't have that mark during that time, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. You're going to have a hard time. But believers will be willing, as they always have throughout history of the world, put up with a little bit of hard time for doing what's right. In honoring before the Lord. <clears throat> so believers will know it. They won't take the mark of the beast, but they will suffer even to death. Well, verse, or the, verse 11 gets us into our eight point here quickly as we wrap this up. The delusion will come from God himself. Look at what it says. This is amazing to me. It says in verse 11, Therefore, this lie, this delusion, God sends them a strong delusion. Therefore, what does that mean? You've got to find out why that word is therefore. You go back to verse 10. It says, because they refuse to what? To love the truth and to be saved. Okay. Uh, because they refuse that, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe the lie. Literally is what it says. ESV says what is false. But literally, in the original language, it says that they would believe the lie. This delusion, this will come from God Himself. Um, It's simply the judgment of God upon those who reject the message now. See, that's why I said today is the day of salvation. If you're here and you don't know Christ, you need to get right with God. You need to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. Some of you are sitting here, maybe you're listening live stream saying, well, you know, it sounds like you, uh, you sound like you believe that Jesus is the only way. Yes, he said so. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Well, you say that you got to be born again by the Spirit of God or you're not going to enter the kingdom of God. That's exactly what it says. Well, you got to confess that Jesus is Lord or you're not saved. That's right you got to believe that God raised him from the dead on the third day. That's right. If you're sitting here tonight or today and you hear me say all these things to you and you say in your heart, you know what? I am not going to believe it. I don't believe it. I'm not going to accept it. And God returns for his church. Many people believe you will not have a second chance. Many people believe that you'll go into the tribulation and you will fall under this delusion that God is giving those who have refused the truth and you will be deceived and you will be among those, believe it or not, who actually follow and worship Antichrist. Now on the other hand, many of us have lost loved ones that we're praying for. I mean, I think that we have to be honest enough to say that the, I, I, I kind of see here that this is, is is teaching about active rebellion and rejection. It says they receive not the love of the truth and that they might be saved. Some people are still thinking about it. Maybe they're Gentiles, maybe they're Jews. Doesn't matter, but Maybe, perhaps, they will have a a chance to believe. We don't know, but we need to do the work now, right? Of sharing with them the gospel of Christ. You don't want someone to undergo all of this without Christ. If you had the opportunity, the Bible says in Genesis, my spirit will not always strive with men. So, this, this word... Here, the lie, this definite article in front is, is the lie. Well, what is the, the lie? <laughs> we still haven't defined it. There's a lot of different arguments to this. Some people say that because uh, the lie uh, in, in Revelation 11, it speaks about the Antichrist speaking against those who, who dwell in heaven. Um, some people say it's, he's going to come up with a major explanation of what happened. Uh, To those at the rapture, it's going to be a big lie. I mean, that's not too far from the truth when you look at the movies that will be put out. It'd be very easy for people to believe. Yeah, you know, aliens came and took away all those crazy Christians. We don't have to deal with them anymore. Thank goodness. Now we can just have fun. Um, I mean, do you understand when the rapture happens? People say there there are. There are are, are many, 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 many million believers, even in China alone. Yet, all over the earth, when that rapture happens, all those people are gone. Pilots and train operators and ship operators and car operators. I mean, the Bureau of Missing People are going to have a, a field day trying to figure out who's who. Planes are going to be crashing all over the place, there's going to be accidents everywhere. It's going to be hard to explain what happened. But the lie might also, which is probably more likely, the great lie that's being put forth here might be that this individual, this Antichrist, actually is the Messiah. One final thing. Verse 12. The damnation of all those who are deceived will come. The damnation of all those who are deceived will come. Look at what it says in verse 12. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Two things here quickly. First of all, why would they be Condemned because they did not believe the truth. They did not believe the truth. I mean, when everything hits the ceiling, the bottom line basically is you know what? Either God meant what he said or he's a liar. It's not what I say. It's not what your friends say. It's not what your family says. What does God say? God's word is very clear. It's the truth of God's word, the Bible says, that will set you free. From your bondage, from your sin, it will set you free. A lot of people believe, oh, becoming a Christian, it puts you in chains. No. First time in your life you're free to do what God has called you to do. You're free to experience a life that's free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And ultimately, what? The presence of sin. We will be able to dwell with God forever in heaven. See, the truth of God's word will set you free. Well, these people who are condemned did not believe the truth. The Bible says, Thy word is what? Truth. Well, secondly, closely related to this, not just that they did not believe the truth, but because they delighted in unrighteousness. Now, we don't have to say a lot about this. Just look around. (laughs) Do you believe, honestly, today that we live in a culture, we live in a country, we live in a world that takes pleasure, that delights in being unrighteous rather than godly? It's just pick up the newspaper. Watch the news. Or rather, don't. You know, it's just discouraging. I'm trying to get away from the news altogether. I mean, even the ones you could trust, you can't trust anymore as far as I'm concerned. But pleasure-seeking is everywhere. You see it everywhere. You see it on the Internet, on movies, and, I mean, businesses. All this stuff, they're, they're, they're pursuing ungodliness. I mean, in Hebrews chapter three, and I'll read this in closing, the writer of Hebrews really tells us the, he's talking about the deceitfulness of sins and um, how hearts can become hardened to the things of the Lord. And he, and he writes in verse 12 of Hebrews three, he says, "Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart." leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't fall into that. But verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day. This isn't a one-time exhortation. This is why we gather as the church, because we need this kind of exhortation. This is why we need to touch base with each other daily. I mean, if you're living your Christian life thinking that somehow Sundays are good enough and that's all you need to do to get your fill of the word of God and your fellowship with the fellow saints, you are deceived. I don't care who you watch on TV, who you listen to on the radio. If you're not fellowshipping with the body of Christ and coming out physically and sitting your butt in a chair while someone teaches the word of God, you're missing it. You're missing it. I get it. Our lives are busy. I get it. We can come up with a million excuses not to gather with the saints when the saints gather. But none of those excuses are going to matter in the end. He says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. In other words, you don't know what's happening tomorrow that none of you may be, listen, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is what 's happening in our culture, churches are allowing are allowing their congregations to, yeah, just punch punch the clock on a Sunday morning. You're good. No, you're not. It takes commitment. It takes everything we have to follow after Christ with everything we have. The Bible says, 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of Pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the, listen, the appearance of godliness. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then he says this. Avoid such people. Wow. Wow. Avoid such people. It looks like we're there. This tells us that we not only need to examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, but also that we might be more, let's just say it, active, more faithful in sharing the good news of the gospel with as many people as we possibly can and as gathering together as the saints and praying for souls and being built up in our faith and having fellowship. This is what we should live for each and every day. Because we may be living with only a few days left. We could be living in the last few hours or minutes before this event, the rapture, happens. And we don't want you to be caught off guard. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we we know that a lot of what we read this morning we studied is debated by a lot of good men, good theologians. And I'm not up here saying that I have it all right either. I'm just trying to understand what your word says. But the more we look around, we see things that are being taken, uh, being done, that are literally coming out of the Bible. Things that the Messiah said would happen are happening all around us. It's happening right in front of our eyes. And yet we know the enemy of our souls is blinding the minds of those that have yet to believe. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of the Messiah should shine into them. Some have been hardened by sin. Some have been deceived by their own selfish pleasures seeking instead of loving the truth. They ignore it. But Lord, we thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that you are still able to work in the hearts and lives of people. To draw them out of darkness. And allow their delight to be in you. In you alone. Father, we know that this day is coming. And Lord, we know that... You have provided for us a way out. So we wouldn't have to undergo this day of the Lord, this wrath that you will unleash here on this planet. Lord, help us not to fall for the lies. Help us not to put our faith, our trust in government, thinking that somehow they have our best interest at heart. That's clearly not the case. Lord, our our hearts, our souls need to have trust in Christ and Christ alone for the salvation of our souls. If there's anyone here who's within the hearing of my voice, whether you're here physically or listening online, and you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You need to commit your life to Christ. You need to turn from your sin, turn to the Savior, And pray a simple prayer, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe in Christ. I believe that he came, he died for my sins. I believe that he was buried and rose on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And I want to follow him. If that's your prayer this morning, you will be converted. You will be transformed by the glorious power of God. And he will, as the Bible says, all things will become new. Old things will pass away. You're a new person, a new creature in Christ. That can only happen from God's hands. I can't pray that prayer for you. But as you entertain these truths that you heard this morning, I pray that your heart would be wooed, would be drawn to Christ and Christ alone. And for believers, I pray that we would realize we're living in this messed up world and it's not going to get better. And we need to get serious about the things of God. We need to look at our schedules and our priorities and realize that, wow, you know what? Yeah, maybe Sundays aren't just enough. Maybe we need to be a little more committed than what we are. We can all say that honestly. I know I can. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the wherewithal to have a desire and a love for your word, a love for the saints, a love to fellowship together whenever we can. Because it will be coming to the day when we'll be out of here. and We want to be the most effective that we can in our time that remains. So, Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for our salvation in Christ. We pray that you'd bless the food across the way to our bodies. And bless our hearts as we sing one last song. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.